Welcome to a new edition of the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino. On this episode, we talk with President and CEO of the Talboy Foundation and CDC veteran Philip Talboy. He has worked with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention since 1983. He has held multiple senior management positions to include deputy director as well as team leader for the Global Rapid Response Team. He has been deployed multiple times for public health emergency responses like COVID, and we do get into that. While responding to Ebola in West Africa, specifically Liberia, he witnessed not only the devastation, death, and destruction caused by Ebola, but the extreme poverty, lack of education, and drinking water. As a result of that, he set up his organization to begin helping the people. We cover quite a bit in this interview. Enjoy. Hello, Joe. Hi, Philip. Nice to meet you. Nice meeting you. I do want you to know that this is my first podcast uh, as a guest. So oh, cool, man. Very cool. Well, we'll we'll be gentle. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. For <laughs> so, sure. So we'll start off here with what we've all dealt with, which is seems to be go up going up your avenue of what you've dealt with your whole life, um, which is COVID. And not specifically COVID, but you know, disease and infections, those things. How did you survive that time period and how has it changed the way that you live your life now? With COVID or yeah. Ebola? Um, with COVID, I was actually the uh, CDC country uh, deputy country um, director in China um, from November until February of November of 2019, February of 2020. Wow. Um, so I was the, the first American to actually receive a report of 27 cases of a pneumonia of unknown ideology with 14 deaths. And I began working on COVID um, in in China on New Year's Day of 2020, uh, long three months before it was known here in the United States. Um, I believe I had COVID in November while I was in, um, in China. Following coming back from China, I was deployed about 11 times throughout the world from from China to South Africa to Sierra Leone and to five uh, Native American reservations that that I actually did contact tracing um, case investigations. So I tracked down people that were exposed to COVID um, as well as finding those that had tested positive to make sure that they were were um, being isolated. So I've been working on it from the very beginning and had it before anybody knew what it was. Wow. So, you know, there had been previous infections. Obviously, there was the 19th strand. There had been previous infections. How did this get out of hand? How, how, in your summarization of seeing these things your whole life, how did this specific one turn into an, an epidemic? Um, and this is my opinion and not CDC's opinion. Um, I believe it was basically because humans had not been exposed to that particular virus before in the past. It's the same thing that happened to the natives in America when we um, when the Europeans arrived with measles. Um, and it just devastated the American native population because they had no antibodies or immune. They were not immune or had any immune properties to fight off that disease. And I think that's the same with COVID that it was a newly recognized or discovered disease. You know, the origins, who knows where the actual origins are. Most people say that it was from the, the bat cave um, and bats is where it came from. And um, evidently the Chinese were actually researching that. 
Now, I don't believe that, that it was released intentionally or anything of that nature. Um, I can tell you that in November, um, when I was in China, we were working a, a, a plague um, case where three um, employees of that Wuhan lab became infected working on the plague. So their, their PPE or their personal protection was not that good practice. So if it happened with the plague, it could have very well have happened while working on COVID and then somebody become infected in the lab and go out into the general public and then we begin community transmission. But that's my take on it um, and not officially CDC's. And I've never thought from a conspiratorial standpoint that there would be any reason that any government would want to release something like that and cripple the economies and the and the fabric of any country. It just it doesn't make any sense. And I'm almost at a point now where I've heard this so much. Like, what's the real end game here? What are we going to focus on? It's kind of like, you know, I work in a school district by day and there's all the focus on guns. Like at the end of the day, I understand that something needs to happen, but we need to focus on the mental health of these kids. It's like we almost need to get to the root of what's going on, because for us to debate whether or not it was released or not, I just don't believe that any government's going to do that because it, it's going to cripple China as much as it's going to cripple any other country in the world. And it has crippled China more than any other country in the world because okay. they drastic measures of of making sure everybody was quarantined in their in their homes um, when i was working there in in december and early february when the chinese said everybody has to stay at home um where i used to walk from the hotel to the embassy i would pass 10 12 14 000 people um after they said everybody has to stay home I only passed one or two motorcycles that were delivering food or the embassy guards. So once they stayed inside, again, this is my opinion, they did not get exposed. So until you're exposed, you're not going to build uh, um, antibodies unless you're vaccinated. And as we've seen, the vaccinations aren't 100% effective. So how, how, what have you been doing since that, February 2020 to now? What, what's been kind of your timeline of what you've been doing? I have not done anything um, extraordinary. I don't wear masks. I wash my hands often, often, often. If when I was interviewing a patient with COVID or if I was coming upon a contact that was a contact to COVID, I would make sure I wore my mask. Working on the Native American uh, reservations, they taught me to make sure I was upwind from where, where the individual is standing. So there was no possibility of becoming infected. But I believe that, um, you know, through the infection that I had in 2019 in November, that I built up antibodies um, to, to COVID and the exposures that I had from South Africa, from Sierra Leone, from the Native American reservations were little bits of, at a time. So it helped strengthen my, my immunity. So um, I did not get vaccinated until I believe it was 2020 after I had been deployed about five or the 11 times um, throughout the world. So I was going to the hot spots, flying through Dallas when Dallas was the was the hot spot and people getting on the plane sick as could be sitting next to me, you know, coughing with a fever and and that type of stuff. And it's like it's it's March in April, you know, we're in the middle of COVID and, and here you are getting on an airplane sick. Um, so I, I took precautions, not, not 
extreme. Uh, washing hands is always the best line of defense on any um, any um, infection whatsoever. And then just making sure you don't stay around sick people. If somebody's coughing in a room, go out of the room. I normally work, my day job is in tuberculosis, which is also an airborne um, infection. Um, and a lot of the information they got about COVID came from the TB world. If I were seeing a patient um, to talk to them, I'm not a physician, I'm a, I'm a disease investigator, and I was, would be interviewing them or speaking to them in a small room without much ventilation, I would definitely have an N95 mask on. I would put a, N90, or a regular surgical mask on the patient. I did this when I worked at homeless um, INH um, resistant homeless outbreak here in Atlanta, where I pick up a homeless guy on the street. I put him in the car. I put a surgical mask on him and opened the windows wide so that I had a lot of airflow. Um, and I've never been infected with TB. And um, other than that, November 2019, I've not gotten COVID again. So, you know, we haven't had this kind of an outbreak since the Spanish flu, which was quite a while back. Do you foresee as we move forward since we've crossed this threshold, this modern threshold of a pandemic, do you see something potentially like this happening again? I mean, are we susceptible now or was this an anomaly? Um, this was an anomaly. And I think that it was because we hadn't been exposed to it. Humans had not yet been exposed to COVID. And again, I don't know the origins of COVID, but I've been told that it was from bats and they have this bat cave where millions and millions and millions of, of bats live in. It's along Sierra Leone and Guinea. Um, and they go there and research those bats and find new diseases so that they can look at them and prepare for them in the future. My personal feeling is, yes, we're going to find something else. Something else will happen, whether it's from the bat cave or bats or wherever it may be. Something's going to come up in the future that we have not previously been exposed to so we have no natural defenses against it that's the other thing that's interesting about this is that there's so many people like you that are on the behind the scenes that are working on this like you know people that are testing it and doing all of these things the one thing i do remember hearing was that um that there was an office that obama had set up that specifically was trying to prevent things like sars and the earlier mm -hmm. strands of covid from getting through and it got dismantled. Do you think that was a part of it too? Part of this kind of going out of hand? Um, I don't think that particular agency or group would have had any impact on it. We might've been able to respond faster, but I think the bats were being captured and research was being done on diseases in those bats. Okay. So, you're i can't believe this is the first time that you've been interviewed you've got a fascinating story you are like one of the most relevant dudes around right now like you're in the thick of what we've all lived through and continue to hear reports on um so i'm wondering how this journey began for you how does someone say i want to get into this specific line of work and help prevent this from happening um i was in in 1983 um I, there was an individual in Boise, Idaho that worked for CDC. My sister was a public health nurse um, in Ada County, Boise, um, the county that Boise is in, and reported to him. I heard from my sister that there was um, um, jobs available at CDC. And it's like, oh, CDC, I really want to work with them because I had a friend in college whose brother 
was um, at CDC as a fellow in 1976 when um, when Legionnaires was discovered and he worked on Legionnaires and he was telling me that and it's like, oh, that's something I really want to get into. My father was a surgeon. My mother was a, a nurse. So I've always had a, an affinity for for medical things. And this just happened to happen. And I, I started out with uh, venereal diseases, investigating those um, and, and um, other diseases such as tuberculosis, HIV, um, foodborne investigations, etc. But it's very interesting and 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 I love the work I do. So let's let I'm curious if you did get in front of a bunch of third graders at a career day and one of the kids said, hey, what do you do for a living? How would you boil down what you do? How would you answer them? Um, I answer them by and, and I have given presentations to elementary schools and high schools throughout throughout the country through our speaking um, um, a, a group that we have here at CDC. And basically, I just explained to them like the common code. And everything, people and even kids understand that if my mom is sick and she's coughing and I got a cold and she's got a cold blowing her nose and touches me and kisses me, that disease can be transmitted. And what we try to do is break the chain of infection so that the disease is not transmitted from one person to the next. Many ways of doing that. In COVID, they tried the masks and the distancing, which had some impact for sure. I don't know if we could ever really measure how much, but but it did prevent the spread somewhat. If if a person never was exposed to anybody, they would never catch the, the disease. The problem is, is now three years later, they come out of, of, of their house and now they're really exposed and, and they become infected. You know, I was thinking about that working in a school district. I mean, I'm probably right there next to plumbers with the amount of exposure that I get involved with. And I've mm -hmm. thought about that quite a bit, that there is so much that we get exposed to that is just astonishing that we need to get over. And if we didn't have that, like, that's the thing that I was worried about when we got out of this whole um, period is that if we didn't, if we were in for so long there was going to be raging things that were going to happen when we got out. And I've noticed that like little infections that we were prevented from getting kind of balloon when everybody got out. D is that true? Um, I, I don't have the statistics in front of me. I have heard rumors of that effect. Um, there's a couple of reasons like TB has gone up since COVID that I don't think it's actually that it's transmitting more. I think that, um, staff from the TB program would divert it to work in COVID, which allowed more infection to transmit in that TB infectious pool, um, as well as other diseases are sexually transmitted diseases. Syphilis has gone through the roof. Congenital syphilis has gone through the roof. Some of that is deterioration of the public health um, programs at the county and city level where they're not being funded um, at the appropriate levels. So they cut their services and don't do the outreach that needs to be done in order to really prevent, in my opinion, prevent a disease from transmitting. You've got to find the infected person, isolate them, and find those that were, were exposed and quarantine them until they get over the incubation period and determine whether they, they develop disease or not. That's the only way you're going to spread it. And we've had a lot of history um, at CDC and in public health programs of that actually happening. If you look at rates of syphilis in the 40s, now we we had penicillin then, 
but we were able to do good case investigation and and the rates just dropped off the board because we had good programs and we were intervening in the transmission of the disease. So isn't it unfortunate that this specific COVID turned into such a political thing? Fauci got demonized. There were so many levels of this that I think that's a thing from the public standpoint. I think we all feel as though this probably would have been smoother if it wasn't so divided and so spliced up. Absolutely. And again, my opinion, not CDC's opinion, but I believe it got politicized and that's what what happened um, to it. Um, We we were able to control it, as we've seen. Um, It's under control at this point in time. But um, all the information, disinformation, misinformation, everything going around confused everybody. What is it that motivates you to do this work? What is it every day when you get up that motivates you to do this work and be who you are? Um, I I always wanted to be a Marino missionary when I was a child. My mother um, donated to the Marino missions. She had a, 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 a Marino down in, in Guatemala whose name was Father Joe that she supported quite a bit. My mother was big on education and taking care of other people. Again, my father was a surgeon, um, so I did not come from a poor family. Uh, we weren't wealthy at all. Um, we were we were middle of the road, but my mother really believed in helping other people, and that and it just transferred to me um, to help other people any way I possibly could. And and I believe prevent disease, particularly diseases that can kill you is a good thing. Who's been kind of a role model or a hero for you in your life? Well, the, the, the biggest role model is a, a friend of mine. His name was Hal Shaw. Um, and I met him when I was just three years old. And he kind of he kind of helped rear me with my parents. My father, again, was, was very, very, very busy. So I spent more time with Hal. And through Hal, he always wanted to help people. And I always saw him when I was a little kid taking care of other people going and taking care of somebody that needed help. A flat tire, he would stop and give a flat tire. My father would do the same thing. My father was an old-time doctor. Um, he was a surgeon. He was very, very, very busy. But he would go and do home home visits. He would take care of people. Um, people came to our house to pay him and say, I can't afford the $10,000 or whatever it may have been to, to pay for the surgery that you did. But here's some five fish that I caught up at the lake today. And my father would kind of look at him and he'd go, I think we're even. And he would call off the debt just because he cared. He loved medicine. He loved people. And my mother was the same. They were two um, peas in a pod in that respect. So of all the things that you've done and accomplished in your life, what are you the proudest of? Um, The proudest is actually being a single parent. I raised my son. Um, from age two, um, and he's 40 now, and he's very successful. So I have to say that's the that's the most proudest moment that I've, I've ever had in my life. I, I'm proud of my CDC career, but, but not nearly what my son has given me. So if you had a dream tonight, you ran into the younger version of yourself, a 20-year-old version of yourself, and you could give that version of you a piece of advice based on the wisdom you've gained in your life, what would you tell that young version? Um, I would tell them, make sure that you address every issue that comes up and address it fairly equally um, without a lot of 
um, emotion to it so that you get to the bottom and the, and the heart and the root of the problem. Many times we look at symptoms rather than the root of the problem. And if you deal with the symptom of a problem, you're not going to resolve the particular problem. So I would, the, I would give myself that, um, that advice is to, to make sure that you fully investigated stuff and looked at all sides and, and equal and balanced. So if you can meet anybody alive on the planet right now and spend a little time with them, who would it be? Um, at, at this particular time, um, it's a, it's a tough question. Um, who, who would I want to meet? Um, I think it would be like, like, um, if mother Teresa were still alive, I would want to meet her, um, for, for definitely sure, because here's a woman that gave her life to help poor people throughout the world, put herself at risk for diseases and that sort of thing. I'm not sure who in today's world right now is in that particular category, but that's who I'd like somebody such as that nature. Um, because working all over the world, what I have found is there's drastic differences in economies and the way of life, such as the work I do in, in uh, Liberia with Ebola survivors. They don't have daily food. They struggle every day for food, no running water. 70 to 90% of the households do not have running water. Um, disease is rampant. They've got malaria is just ridiculous along, along with typhoid and other things because of typhoid because of the dirty drinking water and, and that. So um, that's what I want to really accomplish is help people in, in countries that are riddled by poverty. Again, Liberia, where I work for um, the Talboy Foundation, um, is between the fourth and the tenth poorest country in the world. And to give a, a comparison, Haiti is the 39th poorest country in the world, where they make over $4,000 a year in a gross national income. In Liberia, it's $1,400 a year is what they make. And, and the average salary is $100 a month. But it, it's not spread throughout the whole whole um, populace. Um, only those people working. The jobs are very scarce. They struggle for food. They struggle for everything over there. I've had a very good life in America, and I want to make sure that I can provide some comfort to some people that are suffering in other parts of the world. So everyone out there has a perception of you, different pockets and bubbles, family, friends, clients, colleagues, but you live your life. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? Um, I think I'm Phil Talboy. I think I'm just a normal person that cares for other people. Um, that, that hopefully I'm, I'm making an impact with the work that I'm doing in, in Liberia, um, building wells, building uh, libraries and orphanages. Um, we built a library in, in um, Bong County, Liberia, which was the first library in a county. A county is the size of a state. They had no libraries. So one little library is supporting a whole community of people. And we want to make it a smart library so they can go in and and, and use the internet um, and, and work that way, as well as just reading books. But we build wells too. People, they don't have running water. They don't have sanitation. Um, people can walk half a mile to a mile with a bucket to go and pull water out of a well, walk a mile with it on their head, and then either either um, 
you know, boil it, put chlorine in it or something if they're going to drink it, but mostly they use it for dishes and, and bathing and that sort of thing. We're spoiled in the U.S. We can just turn on a faucet and we got water hot and cold and clean. We can drink it. You can't do that in Liberia. And the diseases that are spread from the wells that are not not well taken care of, such as typhoid, um, is terrible, and and it just affects the people immensely. Um, education. My mother mentioned earlier. My mom was big on education. Um, education is the foundation of everything to follow. When you when you think that sixty three percent of the of the females in Liberia are illiterate, they can't spell their name. Forty. 47% of the boys are illiterate. They can't spell their name. That is a problem. Yeah, for sure. So if anyone out there wants to learn more about your foundation, you, your work, anything pertaining to your world, where can they go? Best place is cowboyfoundation.org. We've got a website. Um, if you want to contact me, there's a contact page. You can send us an email or a, a contact um, the office itself. Um if if you want to want to do that or facebook is the most up to date with the pictures of the wells that we've built the children that we have uh, many of the kids that we're sending to school we've sent 163 semesters um, we have paid for 163 semesters for kids to go to school all the way up we've graduated nurse practitioner we will graduate another nurse practitioner um, in December and have a PA in the in the pipeline to graduate because during Ebola, Liberia lost all all their medical staff. So we're we're trying to help in that respect and nurses, PAs, and midwives, um, but also educating young children that were affected by Ebola. Over sixteen thousand kids were orphaned because of Ebola, where they lost one or two of of their parents due to Ebola, um, which is a terrible thing for a child yeah absolutely philip this has been wonderful you were you were you're a star man it's a great first thank interview you. thank you for taking time out best of luck with everything you're doing such wonderful work man i appreciate it i appreciate you taking the time to speak to me thanks for tuning in to another famous interview with joe domino where we cover the world of art literature business spirituality and more from around the globe if you want to hear more interviews, visit the Famous Interviews with Joe Domino channel on YouTube. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and until next time.